Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're speaking here today on Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. We are in the midst of early voting for the June primaries for statewide races, for state assembly races, some party positions, judicial races. There are two sets of primaries this year in the 2022 New York elections. Uh, Right now, in the midst of those elections in August, we will be dealing with the state Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives. So we've been talking about that some on the show. We'll get back to that in the coming weeks and months. But right now, we are in the final days of these June primaries that include the races for governor, lieutenant governor, and many contested state assembly seats. The most watched races, of course, are the Democratic primary for governor and the Republican primary for governor, both of them very competitive and contested. There's been some uh, series of televised debates. We've been recapping those at Gotham Gazette. If you want to check out what happened, if you missed it. Uh, And then the Democratic primary for lieutenant governor is very interesting and competitive as well. There's no uh, primary for lieutenant governor on the Republican side. Allison Esposito will be the running mate of whoever comes through the gubernatorial primary there. And there's a bunch of interesting state assembly races. Some uh, incumbents being challenged by some insurgent progressives. There's some open seats that are competitive. We've got a rundown of those at Gotham Gazette and a races to watch piece. So you can check that out. But uh, really, obviously, uh, because of the immense importance and power of the position of governor, uh, most of the eyes are on the two primaries uh, for the major parties in the gubernatorial race. And today I'm pleased to be joined by Jumani Williams uh, back on the show here, the New York City public advocate running in the Democratic primary for governor. We are here in the middle of early voting ahead of primary day on Tuesday, June 28th. Public advocate Williams, of course, uh, is in the primary with Governor Kathy Hochul and Congressman Tom Swazi, the three-way Democratic primary. And Public Advocate Williams, I appreciate you coming back to the show to talk about the final days of the race here. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure to be on. Uh, extra special to be on as we're closing out this race. So thank you. Uh, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. So we're here Wednesday, June 22nd, a few more days of early voting through Sunday. Then you got primary day on Tuesday, no voting on the Monday as the Board of Elections sort of resets from the early voting sites to the regular sites. Um, what's the state of the race from where you see it? Uh, you are obviously um, have have been far behind in fundraising from a sitting governor. Uh, not a huge surprise there. Being governor of New York State usually leads to quite a windfall in the campaign coffers. Uh, polling has showed the governor Hochul with a with a sizable lead. Um, but what are you seeing? How are you seeing this on the ground? What are you thinking the state of the race is right now? I think everything you said is true. And uh, we usually in this situation where we're either outraised outpolled, sometimes both. Uh, we saw that in the lieutenant governor's race. Uh, we saw that in the public advocates race, actually. People don't realize just about four weeks before, polls had us about maybe fifth. And so from the first race I ran against an incumbent, when I was told I was crazy, I had no shot, uh, to the last race I ran to this one, we seem to be always outnumbered, always outgunned, and uh, things turn out all right on election day. And uh, we know that our voters don't usually show up on the polls. 
we're usually speaking up and standing up for working, middle, struggling New York class New Yorkers. Uh, so it's harder for them to give as much money as the people who are trying to buy policy. But in the end, uh, our message usually works pretty well. So really excited. We've been in the street today already. Uh, and the reception has been really good from Brooklyn to Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And so what is the the closing argument here? You're in the final days You've obviously had a couple of televised debates. You've been making both this combination of your criticisms of Governor Hochul and your, you know, outlining of your vision and your your platform. Um, but what's the what is the closing argument here? As you're, you know, talking with voters, you get two minutes at a at a subway stop, or you get, you know, a couple of minutes at a microphone at an event. Um, how are you, you know, how is your message sort of crafted in the final days here? What's, uh, what's that message look like? I mean, the primary message has always been, uh, folks can feel that we lost 70,000 New Yorkers, and we keep hearing leaders like the governor saying we have to return to normal. And then I say to them, normal hasn't really worked for us. And they understand that. And they understand that we want to normalize our lives, but the the normal of before is what helped get us there. And that resonates very well. Our three pillars of public safety, housing, and the economy are issues that everybody's concerned about all over this state. And the reason we're still worried about that is the status quo politics of Albany has not worked for us. And we represent the best opportunity to change that. And I got to tell you, though, that message is pretty receptive to people who are actually facing foreclosure, facing eviction, trying to purchase food, uh, worried about their job, worried about safety. Uh, and so that message actually is resonating with folks. Give us one thing you want people to know on each of those three categories that you would do as governor, uh, housing, public safety, economy. I know it's obviously not always easy to boil things down. You have uh, you know, fairly extensive uh, campaign platform on your website. People can look at that. But people listening to this discussion, um, you know, people who want sort of a top line uh, pledge from you, what, what's a top line on each of those that you're pledging to do if elected governor? Well, I, I am very proud of the work that we've done uh, on public safety, of reminding folks that from 2012, when we saw an increase of, of gun violence to 2018, I was a leading voice in helping us decrease that violence. Uh, and we were able to do that while decreasing some of the over-policing that was going on. So uh, we've been a leader there, and we'd love to do that statewide. But a great, clear vision of difference here is in the public safety realm, we asked for a billion dollars to be put a, set aside for gun violence prevention, youth services, and victim services, the kind of work we did to help us get to where we were pre-pandemic. We didn't get it. What we got was a billion dollars for a stadium in Buffalo. And that right there really shows, I'm sorry, not in Buffalo, outside of Buffalo. It's not even in the city that needs the most help. That right there shows you a huge difference. And housing, you know, outside of not having any voucher money uh, for housing or any real foreclosure prevention plan uh, or not supporting good cause eviction. Uh, you know, the, the governor's plan right now is to build and preserve 100,000 units of affordable housing. That's not enough for one of the boroughs in New York City, much less the entirety of the state of New York. Uh, and the 20 million people, uh, 220 facing eviction, 90,000 who are homeless, not to count the people facing foreclosure and who are in overcrowded homes right now. We have a plan to build and preserve 1 million units. It's very real. We're happy to explain it. And no one pays more than 30% of their income and rent. That's a huge difference right there on the economy. Uh, When the governor says to a room full of millionaires and billionaires, we're not going to raise 
any of your taxes. We want you to return to New York. And in the next week, raises $20 million from them. And we're saying, uh, if you're not if you're not making a million dollars or more, uh, and mostly actually a billion after you've paid all of your bills, then anything we're talking about doesn't apply to you. And that's important because the way she phrased it is a Republican talking point meant to protect wealthy donors at the expense of the rest of us. And so we're saying if we want everyone to have housing and health care, we have and we want to lower taxes, property taxes in particular for middle and working class, we're going to have to raise that revenue, especially if we're going to run out of federal funds. And you have to raise it off the people who made more money during this pandemic than the folks who don't. And we're not losing millionaires and billionaires we're only losing the people who can't afford to stay in New York. And so I think those right there just give you some clear differences in our vision and the current governor's vision. Mm-hmm. Explain the housing plan a little bit more. Um, what are the key pieces of that? There's, uh, and I'm also wondering, you know, looking at your housing plan, there there is discussion about how, um, you know, New York needs a lot more housing. I think the conversation around, the sort of lack of uh, adequate supply of housing has shifted a little bit in recent months and years as we get more and more data showing, you know, this uh, incredibly low vacancy rate in the city for apartments renting it at $1,500 a month or or lower. uh, As we see just the numbers in terms of per capita housing development in New York City and the suburbs um, just trailing so significantly other places around the country. Uh, You know, it seems like the conversation shifted a bit especially among um, some, not all, progressives like yourself who, you know, seem to be talking, um, you know, fairly holistically about approaching the housing supply issue, acknowledging that, um, you know, that the city and and the suburbs, um, although those can be separate conversations sometimes, uh, need to see a lot more housing growth. Um, So what, what are the key principles of your of your housing plan, the key mechanisms to make it happen, and how are you thinking about increasing housing supply by, you know, uh, a variety of of tools, including, um, you know, letting the private sector sort of do more, maybe through, you know, zoning changes. You know, um, we now live in this city and in the state through this city has the highest rental market in the entire nation used to be San Francisco. We've surpassed it. That's how bad it is. And we could talk about the rent guidelines board and the mess they just created uh, yesterday. But uh, our plan uh, in the the state, it hasn't had any real housing built that the state was really a big part of and owning uh, being since since Mitchell Lama. They haven't really invested in that type of building since Mitchell Lama. We're saying we should build and preserve one million units. No one pays over 30 percent of their income and rent. Uh, That means if you make 100,000, you pay 30%. If I make 20,000, I pay 30%. The difference there, the higher and lower, can help cross-subsidize uh, to make sure that the building can operate because you do need a minimum amount of money for a building to operate. And here's where you can use uh, subsidies. Instead of 421A, which was being used to subsidize market rate housing, you can use subsidies for the type of buildings I'm talking about because not every building will have the amount of money it needs uh, because we want to do this by lottery and if everybody applies to ESD, uh, to the urban development that they already exist. And if you build good housing, everybody's going to apply to it. So there are going to be some buildings that need a little bit more assistance to maintain than others. And that's where you use the taxpayer subsidies, not 421A and other subsidies that don't really get to the heart of it, but to a building like this, a project like this. And it's very sustainable. It's very doable. 
Now, uh, we I'll ask three questions to you and people who are listening right now, you can play at home. Um, but the first question is usually who believes that housing and homelessness is some of the biggest issues we have in the state? Uh, just, you know, proverbially raise your hand. Um, you have to, by the way, you have to talk about housing and homelessness together. Sometimes people talk about it separately. Um, and then everybody raises their hand. Who thinks that the answer to most of the housing issues is housing that people can afford, whether it's supportive or not? Most people raise their hand. Who wants a taller or denser building next to them? Anywhere you go across the state, <laughs> the answer to those three questions are usually the same. Yes, yes, and no. Um, and so we generally know what the answer is, uh, but we have to do more to get to it. And what happens is that our leaders sometimes uh, try to force people into what it should be, when we really should just have a conversation with folks. And you talk to people say, look, we have to give up some density in certain places. Where is it that you want us to preserve right now? And where can you give up a little bit more? And if you have that conversation, I think you'd be surprised. Because I think people will understand if we look the way we did 100 years ago, we would have failed our current population. If we look the way we do 100 years from now, we would have failed them. That doesn't mean you want to change where you live overnight. And so you have to have this conversation in a way that respects that everybody's going to answer those three questions the same, but push them to say, okay, we're going to preserve this area. We're going to give it some density because we have to build and we have to preserve truly affordable housing for us to get out of this crisis. And you're saying in order to pay for some of what you want to do here, um, you're, you're looking at, uh, as you mentioned, revenue raising tax increases on the highest earning New Yorkers. Obviously, we've seen taxes increased uh, in recent years. There was a, a, a tax increase on those very New Yorkers uh, past two years ago. We haven't seen uh, significant data showing wealthy earners, you know, fleeing the state. Um, but but there's got to be a point where that balance could really be tipped, uh, don't you think? So one, some of this housing right now, if we just thankfully <laughs> we stopped this 421A program that was costing $2 billion a year and getting us mostly market rate housing, that money can be repurposed uh, to ESD and the New York State Urban Development Corporation right now to reformat the projects that they are already involved in to do what leaders were saying. Secondly, um, we have to have a civically responsible conversation with wealthy people. Everybody has to do what they can with what they have where they are. As you mentioned, the state's own budget director after the governor made that uh, misinformed comment, I don't know if it was misinformed, maybe willfully and misinformed comment, said that we're not losing this, these folks. We may have lost one. He has orange hair. He lives in Mar-a-Lago and he can stay there. But the rest of the folks who are leaving are people who cannot afford to live in the city. So we have to be concerned about both of those. There's, for some reason, always this question about what about the most wealthy who actually are doing well. And so it's not a conversation at this point about we want to penalize you for success. It's about we have to have this discussion or New York State will continue to fail. Uh, and if we don't know the intersection, uh, understand the intersection of people having housing, having health care and what that means to public safety, we may never will. We may never have we never we may never understand it better than we do right at this moment in time. And we don't have a choice because even some of the good things that were in this budget. People don't know they're listed out in what we call the out years, four, five, six, seven years down the line. And when we lose that one shot money from the federal government, we're going to start cutting those as well. 
and what happens to the New Yorkers who need the most assistance and the New Yorkers who are middle class, who are struggling, who are working. Uh, if there's one group that can have a second home on uh, Park Avenue and not pay any taxes on it, and there's another group who are literally homeless on the brink of homelessness, that just can't be allowed to exist. Mm. What did you uh, what did you think of uh, Governor Hochul had in her original policy platform, um, uh, some policies for accessory dwelling units, uh, you know, allowing those in, in all uh, areas zone for single family housing and then a, a push for more transit oriented development. Uh, those got a lot of pushback, especially from Long Island uh, elect officials, including uh, one of your competitors in this race, Tom Swazi, among others, although he's spoken favorably about some of these policies, but but saying he wants to do them more localized. Um, and then so she dropped those. Are those two things that you would pursue? Are there any other uh, sort of policies uh, uh, like those that are in your in your housing plan as well? Uh, but what about those two things specifically? I think you have to pursue them. Um, what the way it was done just tells me that, unfortunately, as in most things, we're more interested in trying to ensure that we get a group of voters to win an election than to actually help New Yorkers. And that's just a problem. And we see that in the Republican Party in this most acute manner. We're literally allowing people to be massacred by machine guns because people want to make sure they get reelected. Unfortunately, the Democratic Party does the same thing. I don't want us to jump out of the frying pan into the fire, but we have to acknowledge some of the things that we do. And that's one of them. Now, this is a conversation that should have been had with those people who have the concerns that you've spoken about, but we have to push through them because we can't do this without the additional um, uh, housing. And what we do know, and I've seen in the past, is when there's pushback on housing and particularly income target affordable housing, it usually has a discriminatory effect. And we just have to be uh, aware of that. Um, again, we have to do here and protect here. And so we should have a conversation, where is it and what else can we protect if we build up this uh, these units of housing? And then we have to make sure that we make them affordable as well. We obviously have to build up um, you know, in, in, in transit area, which I think is what you said. We wanna make sure that that occurs again, but it doesn't go crazy. Like everybody doesn't, everyone, everybody doesn't want to become Manhattan. And we have to make sure that happens, that, that that doesn't happen when we do this. We also have to make sure that when we do build up in transit rich areas, um, that we don't push out people who are already there. We make sure that affordability remains. <laughs> We could talk housing for hours. I'll, I'll, I'll have to stop there because I want to touch on some other things, although I have a lot more I want to get your perspective on there. But um, we'll, we'll talk housing down the line at some point uh, a bit more. On answers to gun violence, on bail reform, on criminal justice matters, uh, policing, public safety, the mayoral election, public polling, um, uh, other pieces of data out there seem to indicate that you and, and others who offer your perspective are just not winning the public battle. Um, how, how are you thinking about these things um, and, and how and what's gone wrong for Democrats and especially progressive Democrats in making this case? And how are you how are you making it in this in this primary to try to win over people that are skeptical that your, you know, your answers, you know, for lack of a better term, are just sort of too far, uh, you know, towards the the left progressive vision? 
So there's a, there's a lot there. We always have to yeah, unpack you know, okay, what the word progressive means and doesn't mean. It's, it's weaponized right now. The left is weaponized. But then you still have leaders trying to say they're they'll tell you themselves, this is what this is why I'm progressive. So the word actually means something that people want to say they are, which means people are safe. They have housing. They're not saddled with debt and they can get health care. And everybody agrees with that. What happens is when you try to make it happen, are you going to have the political courage to do it and push past the leadership that may be pushing on you? I think that's where the dividing line really is. I would push back and say that I think some of what you're saying is correct, but you look at, I think you mentioned the mayor election, that same election in, where the mayor elected me, elected the comptroller, elected the ball president, elected a lot of city council members that had the message that you were saying. And so I think the electorate is intelligent and understands uh, what's happening and stands at points of view. Um, so I there are many people who were elected uh, that have the vision I think you're saying and speaking about when you say the words progressive and left. Yeah, just, I mean, just to be clear, I'm talking about, you know, moving some funding away from law enforcement into community solutions. As you said, you know, you wanted to see a billion dollars in the state budget for those types of, you know, violence interrupter programs, community resources, you know, really targeted at um, getting at root causes of, of crime and gun violence, you know, th those types of things. So what's interesting, though, uh, if you ask, you know, people who are sold a bill of goods around Obamacare, do you want Obamacare? And they would tell you, no, uh, I hate it. And then you ask them, do you want to keep the Affordable Care Act, the, the, the affordable health insurance you have? They would say yes, not realizing the same thing. And so if you ask people, should we defund the police? They'll say no. If you ask them, should we move some of the money that goes to police for mental health response to the Department of Mental Health and Hygiene? They would say yes. And so we have allowed people to weaponize certain things. Uh, and that is more about an election, again, than actually helping people. And so we focused on that word defund, which is so frustrating to me because I knew it wasn't the best thing to use. But I kept telling folks, our job is not the to worry, to tell people in the street in pain how to express their pain. Our job is to take that pain and turn it into policy and work up with solutions. Democrats are terrible when it comes to talking about public safety, horrible. And so when they do it and they can't do it, they go to Republican light talking points. Republicans are better at their own talking points. Uh, the issue around you know public safety, if you look at those same polls, 66,000 New Yorkers were asked, what should we do about public safety? They'll, they said uh, housing, mental health, and third was responsible policing. <laughs> you looked at people who said, should we have uh, you know some additional police in subway and some other places? Most folks said yes. Yeah, they asked, do you think you have enough police in your uh, community? They said yes. And so a lot of this polling will show you that people want to be safe. And if you present to them safety as simply policing, they will say yes. But if you extend that conversation out and say, do you want public safety, which means everybody has the things that they need to make a community safe, they will also say yes. And so I just keep saying, well, just don't stop at the police question, because why do Every community that you ask about police, which many do say they want that service, and they should get that service. They should get it with transparency and accountability. The taxpayers are paying for that. And I, I've always uplifted that as, as something that is needed as a partnership in public safety. The question is, what happens to the rest of the things those communities have asked for, like income-targeted affordable housing? like schools that have sports programs and, and guidance counselors in it, like more than just potato chips to feed your children, like the ability to go to a hospital and get good health care, like the, 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 the community groups that have been working on the ground fighting for eight-hour shifts 
but 24 hours a day, people are getting shot. Those things are valid as well. We just don't have a structure or the proper funding for them. So people keep doing this. You have to run to your corners. And where we've been successful is telling people that we want you to be safe and feel safe. And when you break down what that actually means, almost everybody agrees with it. The problem that many people have is in the debates, you ask answer a 60 second question. You can't answer public safety in 60 seconds. And so we revert to this is either police or not police. And that's not the case. You focus on bail reform, although uh, the governor's own words, I tell people to read her own words and in her, uh, her own op-ed. It said that bail reform is working. We can't blame the rising crime to bail reform. And if we change it, we're not going to see a drop, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> and that's what happened in the 94 crime bill that people apologized for 30 years later dangerousness is already considered in 49 other states and they have cities that are more dangerous and more violent than us. And if you're a victim of crime, you don't care anything about what's happening in those other places. All you care about what's happening to you and your family. But we have to have leaders that can understand and put some context into it so that we can put a plan that actually gets people to be safe like we did with the leadership I'm proud to have been a part of in 2018 and 2019. And we sounded the alarm that this was about to get worse and nobody listened. And it's just, it's a, it's a frustrating thing to hear because as I've always mentioned, this is not theoretical to me. This is things I've been dealing with for a very long time. As you said, Democrats really struggle talking about public safety. Uh, you know, the bail reform conversation seems to be uh, a really good example of that. There was really nobody at the state level out there defending it as it was, you know, coming under lots and lots of attack. Um, the question around, you know, defund, as you mentioned, defund the police, uh, you uh, seem to be much better at, at talking about these issues. But at the same time, um, you know, there's there seem to be, you know, some challenges with with overcoming that deficit uh, in convincing people in the messaging. Like I said, you know, some of what the polling shows, I, I hear what you're saying in terms of how you phrase the questions can matter uh, to, to how people respond to them. But, um, you know, whether it's. Uh, again, you know, the the message that Mayor Adams won on, whether it's uh, the apparent leads in the polls that Governor Hochul's had um, and, and some of the other ways that we, you know, sort of gauge public opinion is is some of this. Does some of this just come back to money in terms of you being able to get your message out more? You know, what what do you what do you feel like? I understand you said at the beginning of the conversation, you know, you think things are resonating more than polls might show. You you, you know, you've been in these positions in the past and overperformed what some of the numbers have said. But, um, you know, in order to get your message out on especially on public safety, but also on housing and other issues, um, is that is that the biggest impediment? You know, I, I look. The, the other thing I'd add to the question, though, is, you know, I look, you know, I look sort of at your website, I look at your ads, um, you know, maybe slogans are overrated, but, you know, I don't I don't know that I see, you know, something from you in this campaign that's really, you know, sort of defining your vision for people in a very clear, uh, succinct way. Is that a, is that a fair uh, question? Well, uh, one, I, uh, just again to back up, because Eric Adams was elected at the same time as Jemani Williams, Brad Lander, and Tony Reynoso, and a whole new slew of council members. And so people forget that part. There was uh, a, a, a message that was sent. Um, I don't think the message was, was one-sided at all. Uh, and people all across 
the state uh, were elected on this message. Uh, you know, we have we're doing a lot of good work in Buffalo and Rochester. Um, Rochester elected city council members that were even further <laughs> left than some of the things that, that we're saying. So this message is resonating um, if people have the courage to actually have the conversations. The conversations take time. Um, and I think people don't want to take that time. They just want to give quick answers. And I guess we're going into July, and I think people are seeing that the, there aren't the quick answers that people want. There are answers that we can start with day one and day two, and we should do those things. And the quicker we do those things, the safer people will be uh, and the safer people will feel because those two things are sometimes different. And we have trouble addressing both of those. In 2018, 2019, we were safer than we've ever been and people still didn't feel safe. And so we have to really address uh, those things, but we have to help New Yorkers walk through our plan and what that plan is. And the subway is a great example. We said at the first surge last year that if we only send police, we're not gonna be able to solve the, the issues there. I think we're going on to the fourth or fifth surge uh, and we're still not. Um, uh, money is is definitely a big part of it. You know, when you outspend that much, you can't say that money is not a part of it. What we do know is when people hear the message, they actually tend to gravitate toward it. And that's what we've seen in every one of our races even in the ones that we've lost. And so when you have people who want to buy policy and they know that you can't, your policy can't be bought, <clears throat> if it's not beneficial to the people, that's just, it's not going to happen. That's harder to do. Um, but what we will continue to do is push this message. Uh, I do think, I do think when people take the time to listen to our message and we can speak to them, they respond. And the only difference to how many people we can speak to at any given time, sometimes is money. But, you know, in 2018, we, we hopped in the, my car, drove around the state, <laughs> talked to many people as we could. Uh, and we had, a, 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 I thought, what's a, a very good result. Um, I don't see we'll have anything different this time. Hopefully, the only difference will be uh, in this plurality, uh, we'll come away winning. Mm. Um, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, endorsed today your, your running mate, the candidate for Lieutenant Governor Ana Maria Archila, who um, you, you're running separately in the in the primaries, but, uh, you know, running together as a slate. Um, you know, this this gets back to sort of the question around some of the momentum, even the grassroots fundraising. Um why no endorsement for you from AOC? And and what about, you know, just the, the, that as indicative of whether this has sort of been able to capture the progressive movement as a movement campaign that people are really focused on? Well, you know, first run Ana Maria run. Uh, we're running uh, as a ticket. So we want to make sure that we are uh, both winning. Uh, I would say, we actually both have endorsements that each other does not have, uh, but all of the endorsements uh, really lift up the vision that we both are running on. And so it's beneficial, I think, to the both of us, uh, any of those endorsements that one has and the other doesn't. For the both of us, I think you'll find there won't be too many people voting for one and not the other. So I do think it's, it's helpful all the way around. Mm. Are you are you in conversations with uh, Representative Ocasio Cortez about backing your campaign, or or is that not not happening? Given you know you didn't do a sort, she didn't do sort of a joint thing with you and uh, Anna Maria Archila as a as a ticket. 
I mean, I stay in conversations uh, with uh, the the Congress member, her team, with other folks who've endorsed and haven't. I think Ana Maria stays in conversation with people on our side who've endorsed us and haven't endorsed her. So those conversations are ongoing. Uh, but like I said, the the momentum for anybody who's endorsed one of us actually helps both of us. So that part is exciting. Um, and this, I, this reminds me a little bit of stuff. You, you know, you had an assessment of the mayoral race around, you know, sort of people not really coming around Maya Wiley last year until very late. And there was a lot of, uh, I mean, it was obviously a different field. There were people who endorsed Scott Stringer and then left him after sexual misconduct allegations. And, um, you know, Diane Morales was in the mix and, and so forth. But, um, you know, you had a critique. I remember us discussing after the, the mayoral election where you endorsed Maya Wiley that, um, you know, the, the left really just didn't really get it together behind her uh, early enough and strong enough. And that really held things back. Is that kind of happening again here? So what I would say, is I think there's always has to be a postmortem after every election. There will definitely be a postmortem uh, after this election. Uh, but we are excited about what we're feeling on the ground. And uh, we're going to go into this election very strong. I think what you'll see nationally, though, is um, people, you know, people are tired of elected officials. I think they're tired of politics. I think you see that all across the country. You turn on TV and it looks like things aren't working. Even now, uh, even as uh, the governor has spent how many millions of dollars Many people don't even know there's an election going on. And so I don't think we have done a good job keeping people informed. And I think people are tired. They're tired of fighting with Trump. They're tired of fighting to push Biden to do the right thing. Um, and so we're dealing with some of that. But I will tell you, um, just going around and speaking to folks in train stations and supermarkets and on the street, um, it's exciting. I went to Buffalo. I got to tell you, the reception there was even better than I might have hoped for. <laughs> so really excited about this. We'll have a postmortem, and a postmortem is, is is due, just like I did with the mayor. Right now, we're going to build on excitement that's on the ground uh, for both myself and Ana Maria, and we bring we both bring different things to the table that help both of us, and we're excited about that. I'm um, in the last couple of minutes here with Jumani Williams, Democratic candidate for governor, of course, New York City public advocate. Uh, let me ask you a few quick things, sort of sort of yes, no here. Um, you've you've obviously expressed full support for the good cause eviction bill. So I need to ask you about that. You've also said you would sign the um, the sort of partial temporary crypto uh, currency mining legislation that uh, the governor is apparently studying, whether she will uh, sign or veto. And Mayor Adams appear, apparently wants her to veto. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on anything here. Um, the bills that the governor will be deciding on whether to uh, sign off on the extension of mayoral control, along with some changes to the panel for educational policy, um, mayoral control of New York City schools, of course. Would you sign that? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I don't believe in mayoral control. And I haven't since I was a council member of Bloomberg. Uh, I do believe in municipal control. And so if we can put in something with municipal control, at minimum, uh, the city council should have advice and consent on the hiring and firing of the chancellor. At maximum, we should include some of the things that are in this bill and allow some other voices to be in. Uh, but I don't think mayoral control is the best way to move forward. And so I, if we put a municipal control bill in front of me, I'll sign in a heartbeat. I think both the governor and the mayor, and the mayor are wrong on uh, the ban on uh, proof of work 
crypto mining, which is the worst type of mining and is being banned in other countries. Um, it's unfortunate because you look at where some money is coming from and some of the decisions that are being made. Uh, and it's similar on, um, you know, congestion pricing, which it seems to be flip-flopping on and, of course, could cause is a direct link to who's giving money to whom and bad policy that's being signed or not signed. And, and I assume you would sign the the bill that was passed sort of in, in companion with the extension of mayoral control of city schools to uh, uh, require the city to reduce class sizes. You, oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it would be good if there's some uh, some funding attached to that. But absolutely. Well, I think Senator John Liu has explained that, you know, there, there's there's a lot of state money that's been added to what's coming to the city that could that yeah. could certainly help fund that. So uh, that that's an interesting question, whether that is a funded mandate or an unfunded mandate. I, I my 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 sense is that Senator Liu has a pretty good leg to stand on there. Um, last couple of things. Um, do you want the federal do you want a federal takeover of, of the Rikers Island jails? What do you think should happen right now on that? You know, we should. We may be getting to that point really soon. There is validity in the fact that the this administration just came in, and this is a, a decades or more than decade uh, long uh, problem. I will say, after the seventh and eighth person has died, whatever plans uh, of uh, their dad in, in DOC custody, whatever plans are happening. Uh, wasn't quick enough for those folks. And Rikers is dangerous for everybody there, for the staff, the corrections officers who are primarily black and brown, a lot of uh, black women, and the people who are incarcerated there, also black and brown on both sides of those bars. Um, It is just a place you wouldn't want to work or be in for any amount of time. And so there's been failings. And so we'll see, uh, you know, what the the city comes up with, but they got to come with a come up with it and move much quicker than it's happening right now. And uh, last last two questions. One, do, do you agree with um, critics who, who think that uh, law enforcement in the city has in some, and, and related to state laws have gone too easy on gun possession cases? Um, the, the, these are the sort of the nuances often of the um, discussion around gun violence and around bail and, and other things where, um, you know, people talk about murders and shootings. Um, but then there's, there's gun possession cases that people address with a lot of different degrees of, of nuance about what should happen there. Um, do you think that the, the city and state and, you know, prosecutors swung too far in the direction of leniency around, um, some of the more sort of quote unquote simple gun possession cases where you know the person arrested was not uh, accused of shooting the gun but was carrying you know carrying. Where I think we should have focused all of our energy is in getting these court systems to move quicker. We spent so much energy on bail reform on dangerousness but on the point you're bringing up that we missed what actually is the problem, and the courts need to move quicker. And we need to have a real speedy trial. No one should be waiting on Rikers for two years for a stolen book bag or even a simple gun possession. You should have your case adjudicated and you're either guilty and you have to go some ways for a while. And my hope is that you're a place where you get you become back out with being better than where you went in. That's not what most of those things are now. Or you go home. Forgive me, though. You know, a lot of the discussion is is, is around people who are not being sent you know, to Rikers when they've been arrested on a gun possession charge, right? Yeah, but, so, but, but people are saying they should be, mm-hmm. and they sit there for two years or three years, and actually people are dying 
their people are dying waiting for their bail hearings to happen. Mm-hmm. So why would that be the answer to this? And as we simply make it sound, I know it's bad, it's terrible, there has to be consequences, but having grown up here, and I think you may know and folks may know, you can be getting a charge like that and it not be what it seems. So should you sit in jail for two, three years? What I'm saying is, let's figure out how we get these cases adjudicated much quicker. I think it's different if you're saying, yo, you're gonna, you have to sit here for, for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, and if you're not adjudicated, you get out as opposed to you sit there in language for however long in this space that is actually a death sentence and never get your child hurt. And so what we need to be focused on, I think there might be such agreement here instead of focusing on the pieces of it. Let's get these cases adjudicated quicker and faster. Let's also try to prevent these people from using these guns because the Supreme Court is actually going to make this much worse. And so more of the guns you're going to see, every illegal gun now is legal at some point. So there's a problem with our legal laws. After the Supreme Court case, unfortunately, we're going to probably see more legal guns. So then what's going to be the answer there? Which is why we're asking for the funding and the resources that we know have worked in the past so that even if there are guns here, people don't have to pick them up and use them. There are two problems here. It's the supply of guns in our streets and the demand of people using violence to communicate. Jamani Williams, take one minute and uh, and give your closing uh, closing pitch to Democratic primary voters who may be listening. Uh, uh, take a minute with your with your final pitch to to those voters as we're here on Wednesday, June twenty second, in the middle of early voting, and less than a week from primary day, June twenty eighth. Go ahead. Well, you know, as a uh, one of three citywide elected officials, as three years of public advocate, having uh, uh, passed more bills than all public advocates combined, having passed budgets of $90 billion, having been listed as the most productive council member, having shown that our uh, our uh, message works all across the state, I would say uh, we have the experience needed to move on the issues that people are really following and, and dealing with right now, public safety, housing, and economy. You are not better off than you were before. Uh, and that's because of the leadership that exists, not nine months of Governor Hochul as governor, but six years as lieutenant governor and the time before that. We've been pushing on these issues, making government move on behalf of them. And we're running for governor now with my campaign because uh, there's a point where we don't have to just advocate it for it anymore. But as governor, we have the tools to actually move on it to make New Yorkers life better. All right. Thank you for the time. Uh, Be well out on the campaign trail uh, and we will uh, catch up with you after the primary uh, win, lose or draw. Thank you so much. Peace and blessings. Appreciate it. Thank you.